Well, good morning. A little back and forth is okay. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you this morning. My name is Joey Monteleone. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us online, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Happy New Year. As was said multiple times, it is a new year. uh, And things are very different from where I thought they would be. Uh, from a young age to where we actually are now. Some things have radically changed. Other things are eerily consistent. And one of those things that are still happening from when I was a young kid to where I am now is that we are still making New Year's resolutions. We are still uh, aiming to better ourselves and to try new things, to try to improve upon our life. If you're unfamiliar with that term, a New Year's resolution, or just a resolution in general, is a firm decision to do something or to not do something, and it's usually with this idea of health or benefit being added to your life. We want to improve upon the status of where we are. And I think that's a normal thing. Maybe you want to start a new workout regimen. Maybe you start a new diet. Maybe you are going to, you know, spend some time away from social media. Or you're going to intentionally pour into your family. We are seven days into it. So how many times have you had to restart yours? I personally have had to restart mine. Uh, Resolutions are funny because, like we said, we want to be the best versions of ourselves as clearly seen by the billion-dollar self-help industry. I relate to this because I am a restless dabbler. I am constantly seeking how to better my situation, my lifestyle, by adding quick and easy things to it. But what I am sick of is this phrase, maybe you are too, new year, new me. I hear it all the time, and it's nonsense. Do you know why it's nonsense? At least for me, because it never works. It never sticks. I am always, at least for me, maybe you're different, but I find myself in the exact same place from where I started. The fad sticks for a little while, but then I'm right where I began. And I think I figured out why. Uh, the, The reason for me is that When I add a resolution or when I try to change something about my life, I usually am addressing an external symptom of an internal problem. I'm addressing an external symptom of an internal problem. I am trying to add or change things in my life, but the real struggle is happening inside. I'm really unhappy. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm frustrated. And the way that manifests in my life is by downloading a new app, or trying a new diet, or changing something very incremental, trying to find happiness and to fix my discontent and unease. I think we all relate to this at some degree. What can I do to live the best version of my life? What is the best version of my life? If we're following Jesus, I think we're also asking this question, does the best version of my life align with God and his best for me? Are there things that I could or should be doing that lead to a good life, to the best life that God has for me? Is there a spiritual discipline that maybe I could start or stop? Is there something in my life that aligns with God's best for me? Well, we're going to look at a practice today that God has designed for us, a way to find peace, and a a method that deals with the internal so that we can apply and change the external. And before we dive into it, let's open our time and this year in a word of prayer. 
God, we just slow our minds, our bodies, our souls in your presence. We thank you for being a God who draws near. We thank you for your presence with us, not that you have just arrived because the sermon started, but you have been with us this morning. You've been with us since the snowfall, and you've been with us since our first breath. We thank you, and we love you. We aim to draw near to you in these next moments. And so we ask that your spirit would guide us in your name. Amen. Now, it is not lost on me how patient my wife is with me because of how easily I become obsessed with new things. She's probably rolling her eyes as she listens to this right now, but she technically has five children, and the biggest child is always trying to do something new at an obsessive level. I love you. Thank you for your patience. Uh, One of my most recent obsessions is with the brain and the mind. It's fascinating. It's a concept to consider that there is this organ inside of our heads, and connected to this organ, there is a consciousness that makes our decisions. It's not even something we can really define very well. Minds far more intellectual than mine struggle with this on the daily, about how our mind is connected to our brain. No other organ in our body does this. It's fascinating. If you think about it too long, smoke starts coming out your ears, so don't go too far into it. But the mind is a powerful thing. And when I say mind, this is what I mean. Throughout the Bible, the mind is defined as the thought system for conscious reflection and perception. The mind is the thought system for conscious reflection and perception. It is with our minds that we make decisions. It is with our minds that we make decisions good or bad. It's how we think. It's how we understand. It's how we perceive the world around us and the people around us. It all happens in the mind. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, the thoughts that we have in our mind shape who we become and how we interact in the world. What happens in here affects out there. And this would be challenging enough if we were all basically good human beings, but we're not. We all have this problem, this deadly condition that we're born into called sin. Sin is a corrupter. It corrupts everything. It corrupts our creation. It corrupts our society, how we interact with each other. It corrupts how we see other people Every evil in history has a root of sin. And it even affects our minds. The way we think about things has been corrupted. The way that we see others, the way that we relate to ourselves, all of it has this lens of brokenness and depravity on top of it. And because of sin, our minds are constantly at war. At first, we're at war with ourselves. Paul, an apostle and writer of the New Testament, says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. We are constantly engaged in a struggle internally. And then on top of that, the world around us, culture, society, is at war with our soul. The systems and the structures of this world are not pushing you towards God. In many ways, they are pulling your body, your energy, your focus, and your mind away from God. And much of this takes place in the mind. I think we all can understand and agree with this at some level, that the mind is not at peace. I'll speak personally. My mind is rarely at peace. 
because it's running a marathon daily against itself, and then it's got everything else going on around it. It's got culture and politics and family and my schedule all fighting against it. Our minds are at times areas of chaos. Happy New Year. Welcome to church. (laughs) And so if this is the issue, if this is the problem and we want to change it, where do we even begin? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, and just a little context about the book of Psalms. Psalms is a collection of Israelite poems, and it serves as an anthology of Hebrew hymnals. It's, It's their songbook. Many of the Psalms have different authors, but a lot of them are written by King David of David and Goliath fame. The Psalms are thoughts, they are musings, they are prayers, they are cries for help, they are praises. Sometimes it's all of those things at the exact same time. And they are filled with joy and anger and confusion and frustration, but they're also filled with hope. In short, they are reflections on different expressions of being human. And so we're going to read the very first one, Psalm chapter 1. It's just six verses. Let's read it together. It's up on the screen as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. David is writing here in beautiful poetry how we find ourselves in life, and he's tapping into this truth that things rarely happen overnight in our lives. They are a series of little choices that you and I make every day that set the course of our lives. We get to choose most of the things in our life, and those choices then lead us down a path. And this brings us to verse 1. Blessed is the man who, or blessed is the person who. Now, what does that word blessed mean? Because we hear it all the time, hashtag blessed. In Hebrew, the word here is ashrei, which is what people say about someone who is blessed. So essentially, what that phrase is saying is, how good is life lived this way? Isn't life living this way the best version? This is the way to a good life. Okay? This is the way to a good life? How do we experience this blessing? How do we get that? I think we all want it. Well, David starts off with what not to do. He lists three alternatives to living a blessed life. Let's read it one more time in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, there's three distinctions here. There's three separate ideas And one is not worse than the other. They're all bad. But each of these things is to be avoided because of what they are. And in just 22 words, we see three descriptions of a way of living. We see postures, 
We see positions, and we see people. We see postures, we see positions, and we see people. Let's unpack them real quick. The posture is walking, standing, or sitting. Those are postures. It's how we display ourselves towards people. Do we casually connect with someone, or do we intentionally dive into a relationship? That's the posture. And David mentions that in walking, standing, and sitting. Then there's the position. That's counsel, that's the way, and that's the seat. And those are a set of beliefs. That's a framework for how you see the world. But then we get to people, and those three, those three words are wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Now, does this mean all people? Well, there's a distinction he's making. You know, all people are created in the image of God, full stop. All people have a condition called sin, which we've discussed before. We're born into that. But when it says wickedness here, it's talking about when sin is allowed to rule and reign in your life. And it allows that person to intentionally be opposed to the way and the instruction of God. That's what it means when it says wicked. The psalm is talking about that individual. And so with that understanding, this verse sounds more like this. Blessed is the person who avoids and runs from people and circumstances who are corrupt, whose worldview and belief systems are opposed to the way of God. Blessed is the person who doesn't intentionally develop relationships with these wicked people, a person who protects their mind from this type of sinful speech, these type of beliefs, this type of ideology. That's a blessed person. Now, that type of person sounds horrible. We don't want to be like that, and probably most of us think that we aren't like that. We're generally good people. We try to do the right thing. This is talking about other people, right? Well, if I'm honest, I am probably not as militant against this type of evil as I think I am. I find it very easy to find myself in environments with this mindset. Not intentionally seeking out evil, but consistently coming back to a place of connecting with and entertaining a world system that is opposed to the way of Jesus. It's the things I scroll on and the things I watch. Often the things I scroll on while I watch. It's the way I talk about other people. It's the things I allow to influence my mind. This language that we find in Psalm 1 has teeth to it. It is active and confrontational opposition to becoming ensnared by this stuff. And I have to admit, full confession, I at times take a very passive approach to how I control my mind. I just want to be clear about this next part. This is not judgmental on you. This is confessional for me and conviction. But most of us start our day on devices, checking things like email, news, and social media, and we end our day consuming hypersexualized and violent streaming content. The media in particular is that of antichrist. It is opposed to the way of Jesus. It promotes promiscuity and greed. It is self-focused its messages are aimed at gluttony of the soul, consumption, pride. It has no value for the sanctity of life or the worth of people. 
And if you sit in that long enough, it contorts and distorts the way that you see the world. The news does this too, with twisting facts on both sides of the aisle. And it uses fear as a weapon for manipulation and control. And we consume it at an alarming rate in the name of being educated, aware, and current. Let's get even further. The weather does this too. There's not that much snow out there, and yet the grocery stores are probably empty with bread, milk, and eggs. It has our minds. And I get it. We've had a long day. Speak from personal experience. The kids are challenging. Work was relentless. Traffic was bad. And so I'm just going to reward myself with some digital content so I can rest my mind before I go to sleep. Now, I'll be clear. I am not telling you what you should and should not watch. What I am suggesting is that we allow positions, people, and postures that this psalm is warning us against into our lives at moments when we are most vulnerable. And we potentially delude ourselves into thinking that a verse like this is talking about those people. It's not. This stuff creeps in under our noses all the time in the name of rest and relaxation. The very thing that we're seeking out for rest for our souls is actually poisoning our minds. It betrays us. And we keep coming back to it under the impression that we're recharging. Again, conviction, not judgment. And so why? Why do we do this? Well, it's the same issue that has been in existence since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Genesis 3 narrative, the serpent sells them on this lie that by eating the forbidden fruit, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. What does that mean, like God? Well, they would know the difference. And the temptation that showed up in the garden was that I don't know everything, and I should. I can handle anything. And God must be holding out on me. And what that is, is us questioning God's law, God's goodness in our lives. God must be not giving me what I deserve, and so I will be like God and do what I want. And we fall into the same destructive pattern. We think, I don't need to guard my heart. I don't need to guard my mind. I can handle everything, God's instruction for my life isn't bad, but I know better, and so I will be like God, able to do what I want. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying that watching the news or throwing on a movie is the same as the fall in the Garden of Eden, but what I am saying is that because of sin in the world and in our lives, our minds are prone to manipulation from within and from without, where we start to question the goodness of God. Often we begin to focus our minds, our attention, our energy, even our bodies on sinful and wicked things because we need rest from the brokenness of this world. There's a word for what we put into our minds on the regular. It's called meditation. 
Now we need to define that word because that's a common word in our everyday vernacular. That's a buzzword we find within culture because everyone is talking about meditation. You can find it in your apps on your phone. It's in the best-selling self-help books and every podcaster is talking about their mindfulness. What is it? What is this thing that everybody's talking about? Well, we actually do find the word meditation within Scripture. We find it within this psalm as well. It's in the Old and the New Testament. And so when we say meditation, we mean to think deeply, carefully, and purposefully for a prolonged period of time. To think deeply, carefully, and purposefully for a prolonged period of time. Another good word for it is dwelling on something. And if you notice, just using that definition, that's a neutral term. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. You can meditate on positive things. You can meditate on negative things. It's not good or bad. It is a process of focused attention in a direction. And I want to be clear about this. We all do it. This isn't something that just the spiritual people do or just the podcasters do. We all meditate on something. Usually it's what we're going to eat or our Facebook likes. We meditate on our financial status and our relationship status. We meditate on Fox News and Twitter. We're all meditating. It's what consumes our minds. But it's the object of that focus in your mind that will lead you down a path one way or the other. And that's the difference. That's the difference between worldly meditation and what the Bible calls biblical meditation. Worldly meditation is completely focused on you, your desires, your needs, your wants. Whereas biblical meditation has a different focus, and it's actually found in verse 2. Let's read it together. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. And so the object of our meditation, our focused attention, should be the law of the Lord. Now, what is that? What is the law of the Lord? Well, the law of the Lord, or maybe a better way to say it, the instruction of the Lord is anything given to us within the pages of Scripture. Paul, again, a writer in the New Testament, has this, this verse in the New Testament that says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of this book is beneficial to be meditating on. And so that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the prophets and the gospels. That's the Ten Commandments with Moses. That's the teachings of Jesus. That's the parts we like and the parts we don't. And don't mistake me here, I am not saying we just fill our minds with these things because we need more rules. This isn't checklist Christianity that if we do these things, then God will love us. The reason that we meditate on this is because it reveals the heart and the character of God. By meditating on God's instruction, it leads, according to this psalm, to a life of blessing. It tells us to dwell on these things both day and night. Day and night really convicted me as I was processing this because I so segment my day. Maybe you do as well. I'm up at 4.30 every day and I exercise. It's time for me to listen to my skater boy music, as my wife calls it. And then maybe I'll listen to a book for about an hour. And then the kids are up and I'm engaged with the kids until I have to start work. Then I start work and I'm in work mode. 
Maybe I get a minute in there where I listen to a sermon or a podcast or I listen to some worship music, but then at five o'clock, I'm done and I re-engage with the family. And we do that for about two and a half, three hours until the kids go to bed. Once they're asleep, it's finally time for Elena to have one-on-one time with me where we connect and, and finally come together about all the chaos that happened in the day. Maybe we're watching something, maybe we read a book in bed, but then we go to sleep and the circus starts all over again. You see, I have so categorized my life, but the invitation of this psalm is to let the law of the Lord permeate all of that. To think on him while I'm exercising. To meditate on his word while I'm with the kids. To let it change my life while I'm working. Because that leads to a life of blessing. The object of my meditation should be this book. Yes, the truths in it, but more so the person that it points to. This entire collection of writings that span over 2,000 years with various writings and writers, languages and styles, all of it has one arc, one narrative arc, and one central character. And the point is that God saw us in our sin. God knew what we were. And he decided throughout history to take an intentional step in our direction, culminating in him with us. That Jesus came, he died, he rose from the grave and conquered sin and and death. And my invitation now is to focus my mind on him. Again, Paul He's a good guy. He said some really cool things. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind, your meditation on Jesus. If for no other reason, Jesus actually says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So the very thing that we're after, Jesus actually has. The thing that we're after in so many of the wrong places, Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll give it to you. Meditating on the law of God is how we live a life of blessing. But how? How do we do that? Where do I start when it comes to meditating? You know, we are all different. God speaks to us in different ways. How should I meditate? You practice. Practice. The act of meditating, of carefully focusing our attention intentionally and consistently on God requires practice. Now, I bristle against that word instinctually because of my music lesson days of childhood. Growing up, if I had piano lessons or guitar lessons or drum lessons, I would never practice my instrument. And there's three reasons why. One, I'm lazy, especially with things I don't want to do. Two, it's difficult. It's challenging. And I didn't see results very quickly. But the third and probably the most important reason that I don't practice, I still don't practice, is because it makes me look like I don't know what I'm doing. Practice reveals, at least in me, that I'm not the best. I'm not as smart or proficient as I'm projecting to be. And this is a big insecurity of mine that I'm just going to let you in on uh, with at least a dozen stories or more in my life that at times I have been embarrassed, humiliated, and, and called out for not being as prepared or proficient or knowing enough in something that I was doing. And that fear of exposure drives me to this day. 
of not appearing like I don't have it together. And so what I do in those moments is I put up this false sense of security and identity, but I don't actually engage in the process of getting better and working at it because I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel like I don't have it together. Because the fear is if you saw me for who I really am, you'd reject me at worst and you wouldn't love me at best. And this manifests itself in more ways than I care to admit. Preaching's one of them. And when it comes to meditating on God's instruction or meditating on Jesus, I think we similarly avoid practice because we're not instantly good at it and it reveals the fears and insecurities we have in our faith and with God. We give up the second it becomes difficult. But that's the point of practice. It implies that you're not proficient. That's the point of meditation, to continue to come back to this truth because we don't get it right all the time. We constantly need to surrender our minds, our thoughts, and our hearts to God and his wisdom for our lives. We need to return to Jesus and his love. Here's how I practice. This works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. I find a passage... Right now, I'm dwelling on Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10 goes like this. Have no fear, for I am with you. Be not afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and give you help and uphold you with my victorious right hand. I've been repeating that verse to myself every week for 30 years. No exaggeration. I remember the first time I heard it. I remember how powerful it was. Recently, I've written it down. I actually have it tattooed on me. It's important for me. Now, as I've thought about that verse, I've thought about the fears in my life and how God's instruction to me in that verse is to not be afraid. I've thought about what drives me to fear. What are those insecurities? What are those triggers? I write those down and I lay them at the feet of Jesus in prayer. I come back to the cross and I remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his act of love and how he conquered death and fear And then I remember in the New Testament that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John 4. I continue reading, and I see that God not only commands my heart to courage, but he says that he's going to be the source of that courage and that strength. He says that he will help me. So this isn't a maybe. It says his victorious right hand. Imagine what he can do with his left hand. Maybe God's right-handed. This is all the stuff that comes out when I intentionally say, I'm spending time in God's word. All of these thoughts come out when I intentionally focus my mind on God's law. I'm asking questions. The Holy Spirit brings other passages to mind. I allow the Spirit of God to speak to me. And you know what, church? This takes time. This is a slow process. A quote from Maurice Roberts, it is not the busy skimming over religious books or the careless hastening through religious duties which makes for a strong Christian faith. Rather, it is the unhurried meditation on gospel truths and the exposing of our minds to these truths that yield the fruit of a sanctified character. This is an unhurried process. This is slow. It's actually our family's word for this year. Every year we pick a word and a verse to help guide all that we do. This year is slow. And I think we all want that. 
We all want a life that is unrushed, unhurried, and sadly, we lead lives that are anything but slow. But where does this start? It starts up here. It starts in our minds. It starts with our thoughts and what we focus our attention on. And the call of meditation is to focus our minds back on Jesus and the law of God. It doesn't happen in one hour, one day a week. It happens day and night. And according to Psalm 1, this is what bears fruit. Look at it again in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so earlier in the psalm, there's a planting that leads to ruin and destruction. But by meditating on the law of God, you can plant yourself in a way that leads to life. Look at the imagery that we see here. Trees, streams of water, fruit, leaves that don't wither. This is very garden language. This is beautiful. It's simple. It's calm. It's peaceful. David's thought is that by meditating on God's word, a person like a tree of life will taste abundant life and produce fruit. And here's the thing about fruit. We all produce it. The mentality here is not, well, if you meditate on God's law, then you'll produce fruit. We are all producing fruit all the time. What the fruit is depends on what we're consuming in our minds. The object of our meditation will determine the fruit that we produce. If the tree of my life and my mind is rooted in the ways of the world, uh, sinful, wicked ideologies that are in opposition to God and his beauty, then my life will mirror that. But David says, a person meditating on God will be like a healthy tree. Look at how the, the poem closes with its second half in verses four through six. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In closing, the psalm makes a contrast. Meditating on God's word is like a tree, but the wicked are like chaff. It is the exact opposite in many ways. A tree is firmly planted, it is rooted, it is full of life, it bears fruit. Chaff is an empty husk. It is dead. It blows in the wind. The poem begins how it starts. There's two ways to live life. There are two ways that you can live. One leads to destruction and ruin, and the other leads to fruit-bearing life. What's the difference? It's what you meditate on. And so meditation sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty life-giving. I think we're all on board. How does this become a rhythm in our lives? How does this not become a New Year resolution, but something that we practice continually and become people who are following the way of Jesus? How do we meditate on God's law? You pick. You pick. Here's a good structure that I have found helpful with meditation over the last couple months. The first is you pick a time. Pick a time. Develop a quiet time of reading. 
of meditation. For me, this is before the kids' circus begins. I usually take walks around town in the morning where I pray. Maybe I listen to some scripture or a podcast. But I'm intentionally diving into God at that time. Maybe I get back and I drink some coffee, but it's before everything starts. And that works for me. Mornings work really well for me. Maybe they won't work for you. Maybe it's just going to be in the commute for you. Maybe it's after you drop the kids off or you're walking the dog. Maybe this is just before bed or your lunch break, but pick a time. Make the time. And disclaimer, this is going to be inconvenient. It probably won't be convenient at first. But practice is never convenient. So pick a time. Pick what's going to work for you. After you pick a time, pick a passage. Find a section of scripture that you're going to sink into. It doesn't have to be long. You don't need to do the entire book of James. You could just pick one verse and that would be enough. But find a manageable portion of God's law or God's character that you're going to intentionally focus on for a prolonged period of time. And then finally, pick a habit or pick a way. Pick a way you're going to do this. Are you going to write it? Are you going to journal? Are you going to recite scripture to yourself? Are you going to memorize it? Will you put it on your phone? Is it going to be on your fridge so that you always see it? Will you find a worship song that's connected to it so that you can carry it throughout the day? There is no wrong way to meditate. Actually, there is a wrong way to meditate, not doing it at all. And so how do we practice meditating on God's law? We pick. Pick a time. Pick a passage. Pick a habit. This leads to a life of blessing. A life that is centered not on ourselves, but is centered on God and his love for us. That, I believe, is the invitation in this psalm and for us this year as it starts. Meditate on God and his instruction. Let him transform you. Do you know why? Because he loves you so much. He really does. I believe that with all my heart, that every person listening to this and in this room is loved by God, not because of anything that you've done or anything that you could do, but because of who he is. And his invitation is, come and know me more. Come and discover the love that I have for you. Come and be one with me. The world is broken. The world is sinful. It does not push you towards me, but I am calling you, church of 2024, to come back and spend time with me. Don't rush it. This isn't a checklist. Come be with me. That's the call. That's what meditation does for us. And so as we wrap up, we're just going to take a second and pause because I think a lot of times in our church culture, particularly the way that we do things, we're very response-driven. Okay, I heard something, and now I'm going to do it. I don't think that's the call this morning. I don't think there's five things that you need to now go and do. I think we just need to sit in this for just a second. And as we do, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. We're just going to sit in this for just a minute, and then uh, I'll close this in prayer and pronounce a benediction, but let's close in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would begin the work of transformation in our lives. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you how it has been on display for generations when we deserved it and when we didn't. In fact, we don't deserve it. 
because of how sinful and broken and depraved we are. God, we confess our minds are war zones all the time. Would this year be the difference? Would this year be the change? Because we've decided to plant ourselves in soil that is rich and beautiful and life-giving, soil that is your word. Would you just speak to us now? thank you that you answer prayer and I believe as we prayed in our time of worship that revival would start here I believe it already has that you're doing something in our lives and we look forward to the fruit of what is happening in this moment we thank you in advance for your work in our lives for drawing us closer and closer to yourself. I pray that as we leave from this place that you would seal, seal the work that you're doing as we also sang. Here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Affirm what you're doing. Continue to speak as we continue to draw closer to you in your name. As always here, we have our prayer team. If you'd like to come up and just receive prayer for anything, maybe it's something that you heard in the sermon, maybe it's not. Uh, Our team is here and available for you, but as you go, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time.